Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Morning, everyone. How are you? Mixed bag in the house. Uh, I'm feeling a bit shaky, truth be told. Uh, Emma hasn't been well the last few days. Uh, some of you might be aware of that. She's been in and out of hospital. Uh, and since I've been here this morning, she's gone back into hospital. Uh, but she has come home, I think, or on, a, on her way home. Uh, some of you will know that God did a miracle in her life uh, 20 years ago, almost. Uh, almost to the, to the month uh, when God rescued her. And it's left her with a, a, an asthmatic tendency, which has been brilliant for years, but there's a virus going around apparently. And uh, it's complicated now because Kerry and I are supposed to be flying to Africa uh, early tomorrow morning. So um, we'd value your prayers for uh, what the right thing is for, uh, for these next few days, for, for Emma, for us, and, uh, and what God has planned. So what's God saying and what are we going to do about it? I don't know what God's saying and I don't know what we're going to do about it. Uh, but that's the task for today. Uh, <laughs> So uh, uh, join us in that. We're, we're um, great. We're, we're back in the, um, the heart of the Reformation. Some of you will scratch your head and think, oh, that seems strangely familiar. Well, that's because it should be strangely familiar because uh, at the back end of uh, the autumn term, uh, we looked at uh, the Reformation that happened 500 years ago, and uh, I tried um, uh, to draw some insights and some principles that would take us uh, forward. And I had one more. Uh, in the bag, so to speak. And it was that lovely Sunday when Jason got baptized. Remember that? If you missed it because of the snow, you proper missed it. And we had a beautiful morning and God knew exactly what he was doing. And it was all totally, totally perfect, apart from the fact that I didn't get to preach. So if a service can be perfect without me preaching, it was perfect. Um, But I thought you can't get off that lightly. I've sweated over this, so you're going to get it, whether I like it or not, and whether you like it or not. So, I don't know. Anyway, looking at it again this week seemed kind of timely, and uh, I'm going to share these offerings for you so you can pull out the old hashtag of uh, heart reform, and, <clears throat> and let's, uh, let's get underway. Let, let me remind you about the basis of the whole thing. The basis of the whole thing is the Reformation was an example of something that happens Uh, all the time. An example of something that's happened all the way through Christendom, which is we as the church, as Christians, grab hold of a truth and believe it and live it. But over time, whatever those forces might be, over time, we lose sight of a truth that we once held dear and it slips from our fingers and we need to capture it all over uh, again. So something we used to know, something that was valuable, something that shaped, challenged and guided us, somehow gets submerged or lost uh, through the passing of time. Perhaps it gets lost under human uh, tradition or, or, or we discard it, not meaning to deliberately discard it, but over a period of time it just kind of ebbs away from being a central tenant of our lives. It's true for all of us. And uh, this quote that I was uh, using back in the autumn uh, remains true. The great Christian revolutions came not by the discovery of something that was not known before, 
We're not looking for new truth. There's plenty of truth we know and understand. They happen when someone takes radically something that was always there. And I think it probably takes greater courage to rediscover something that we once knew and have kind of lost the sharpness of it than to find something new uh, or to grab hold of a a challenge for uh, the very first time. So I've called this message Courage uh, to Change. Change? Who said change? Courage to change. And I want to share a few truths that I think it's, or or I think it has been the case that collectively they've slipped from being in the level of sharp focus that perhaps they once were and perhaps they should have been. So as I share these four or five truths, we'll see how we go. I'm not saying these are the ultimate truths and they are the only truths that we need to get hold of. But I think they're examples of truths we once knew well, maybe not necessarily in our own personal lives, but in terms of our Christian tradition, truths we once knew well that we would do well to rediscover. And and I guess what we're doing is thinking about where the blind spots have come. So even as I say that, we need to acknowledge that even in suggesting some of these truths, we do it tentatively because blind spots are blind spots. You just can't see them. And so as we talk about blind spots, we recognize our own. So what are these collective truths that perhaps we once knew and and have slipped from that place of clarity in our lives? Here we go. First off, we need a rediscovery that we are a radical people, that we are a radical people. The Christian calling on our lives is unmistakably radical. But it's very easy to become comfortable. It's very easy for it to become sanitized. It's super easy for us to create a faith that is safe and risk-adverse. And so as the passage of time moves on, we once were young and enthusiastic and we were going to win the world for Christ before lunchtime to be a little bit more level-headed, which means safer and comfortable and more secure. People who are radical stand out. Give me a radical Christian. Martin Luther King or Martin Luther, whichever one you say. Elizabeth Fry. George Muller. Who? Todd White. Got it. William Booth. Brother Andrew, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Mary Slessor, yeah. some more, more recent, uh, any recent radical Christians? George Verwer, someone else said Justin Welby, did they? Who said that? You, down there. Ooh. Good, but Jackie Pullinger, Patrick Reagan, Christine Kane. Oh, we've had Brother Andrew, you're out. <laughs> Honestly, John, you're not paying attention or what? Definitely add um, Christine Kane, Floyd McClung. They stand out because we recognize that somehow they've grasped something that we have not quite, not quite grasped. Do you with me? Do you feel that sometimes? Or, or they've taken the, the truth that we know and they've applied it in their lives at a level that we have not yet. Or is that just me? That we're not quite comfortable with. And I guess part of the trouble for us is that our, 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 our 
culture has made being radical about something an ugly and a dirty and a bad word. There is a massive force in our culture to mediocrity, to everything in moderation. That's the good word. Yeah, everything in moderation. But, but what do the scriptures want to tell us when they describe the early followers of Jesus? Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. There was something in that very simple verse that wants to say the moment you decide to follow, you are engaging in something quite radical, quite immediate, quite all-consuming, quite life-changing and transforming. And of course, it's not the only time. We see it in all kinds of different contexts. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector, big hiss. That's not very nice, saying that to tax collectors. It's their job. But in this culture, it was a hiss because they were thieves. They were using their position of authority to manipulate and to steal. And yet his life is transformed. And what does it say? Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up. And what did he do? He left everything. There's the undisputed, radical nature of following. Now, now, we wish perhaps that there was a bit more detail. What did it mean to leave everything? Well, well, we don't know. We're just left with that awkwardness of, my word, what, what does it mean for me to leave everything for Jesus? How, how does that make sense in, in, in my context? What does it mean tomorrow morning to get up and to leave everything for Jesus? And just to add a bit more uh, detail, or perhaps to turn the screw a little bit, Jesus said these, these kind of awful, I mean literally awful words. Be my disciple. You've got to deny yourself. In a world that says affirm yourself and bless yourself and encourage yourself and help yourself and self, 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 help yourself. Imagine if all those magazines were no longer in the shelf. W.H. Smith would go into liquidation before the end of the day. Whoever wants to be might must deny themselves and take up their cross. So in other words, must deny themselves and walk away that's like a bloody execution where you die of asphyxiation. That's what the cross was. Every day they would see people nailed to a cross. It was the most gruesome, horrific form of murder that's ever been invented, you could argue, to mankind. That even the Romans, in all their horror, outlawed it 100 years or so, or was it 200 years after Jesus, deciding that it was too inhumane. Welcome to the party, you Romans. It was awful. And yet Jesus uses this absolutely awful, laying down life in a horrific manner and says, hey, do you know what? Being one of my followers is just a bit like that. It was no wonder, it was no wonder when they listened carefully, most of the disciples said, Jesus, you're off your head, this is way too tough, we're going back to our families. And that's what they said. And who can blame them? Radical, all-out compromise. <laughs> Let the dead bury their dead. That was another pastoral thing Jesus said, which was another way of just saying, you all out for this? Are you? I know it's hyperbole, I've read that bit in the commentary, but what's, 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 what's the point the point is it requires something radical of us. And we haven't put up the verses about chopping off parts of your body in case they cause you to sin. You know, most of us would just be rolling in this morning, wouldn't we? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You know, I've rolled myself into church because I've chopped off all the bits that give me trouble. I'm sitting in the pew, but I can't see in here. And the reason I'm on the seat is someone lifted me on. Generally, being a Christian is so nice, isn't it? They're nice people. Western Christianity is not... Very radical. 
As if I hadn't had enough of church when I was growing up, I used to go to a Sunday school in the afternoon. That, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Sunday school, even the name sounds really alluring. And it was full of quietly spoken, nice middle-class people that would give you a sticker if you memorized the Bible verse. That was as scary as it got, being a Christian, as whether or not you'd go home with your sticker. In a crisis, I would not have called those people. If I was looking for an adventure, I would not have called those people. I don't mean to criticize them. They were lovely people and they taught me some stuff. And I've been that lovely person trying to teach other people, so don't misunderstand me. But it was nice. But it was insipid and it was bland and it was um, flannel graph. I think we should bring those back. But that's the point. There's a flatness about it, wasn't there? Do you know? There was no 3D technicolor. We're going to talk about Moses because he's the only biblical character we've paid for. So we're going to do Moses and we stick him on the flannel graph. It was a game changer. We have to recognize the forces that are at work in our world that would squeeze us, as J.B. Phillips say about Romans chapter 12, squeeze us into its mold. And what's the world squeezing us in to a laid-back, mediocre, everything in moderation? Keep it to yourself to make sure you don't offend. If you want to go happy-slappy about Jesus, then you do that, but don't make sure it doesn't involve or affect anybody else. We have to recognize... and. It's complicated, isn't it? Because some of, those, some of those cultural forces are there for good reason because there is a, a radicalism inspired by hate that we find in our world that's intolerable. But it's become very disempowering for people that want to follow Jesus in a radical way. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with that. You with me? Do you want your children to have a good education? Yeah. Do you want your children to get a good job? Do you want your children to be financially secure? That's just what the world wants for their kids. There's nothing different or radical yet about following Jesus in any of those statements. I'm not saying those things are bad. Don't misunderstand me. But there is another level to which the the Spirit of God would call us. Do you want your children to be radically devoted to Jesus, that they'll give up everything to follow him in whatever way that works? Do you want them to take a risk that you didn't have the guts to take? Do you want them to live the adventure of faith at a level you have not yet reached, but you're going to help them by letting them stand on your shoulders? Do you want them to punch big holes in the darkness, to speak out, and as a result, to be singled out, to stand up and be counted, and as a result, to be pointed out, to take on evil, to attract controversy, to be known as different? But will they still get a good pension, Lord? Will everyone still like them, Lord? Will they be safe, Lord? We had a very moving time, uh, Karen and I, um, uh, in, I don't know when it was, when we were on sabbatical. We went to, we went to Lindisfarne, Holy Island. Anyone else been there? Five, five, six of you, seven of you. Great. It's, um, it, it's where um, Aidan, who was uh, Saint Aidan now, uh, came from Northern Ireland and set up a community on this little island and, and basically through using the principles of missional communities, story for another time maybe, uh, caused revival to break out through the whole of the north of England. Just incredible story. But what was amazingly moving for me was how utterly rock hard the whole thing was for them. It's a bleak, beautiful, windswept, lonely, cold, freezing, God-forsaken part of the world in some senses. And they lived on this island and they lived this monastic life, praying and mission, amazing rhythms. And they literally gave up everything 
to see the whole of the north of England one for Christ. And, and I'm on this island with all my duffel coat and woolly hat and stuff thinking, what are we going to have for tea? We'll get home soon and the radiator will be on. And, and you think that these guys properly dug in for Jesus. And I find that really moving. And I asked myself, what would it take for me to dig in like that? It's not the same thing, is it? It's, you know, turning your heating off at home and saying you're digging in for Jesus is not the same, is it? There are different ways we need to dig in to the ways they dug in. But what does it mean? And then I started thinking of these verses from Hebrews when the Bible kind of says what it will mean. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others, so far so good. That's like being on the winning team, isn't it? There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. I'm not sure what that means, to be honest. It seems not too bad a price to wear sheepskin, given the previous verse you were killed by a sword. I'll take the sheepskin, thank you. Persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith. That's the life of faith. I'm not sure I want it. You with me? I'm not sure I want it. But I do. You with me? I want it with all of my heart, but I'm not sure I want it. We need to rediscover that we're a radical people. Our calling, our birthright, our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to live this kind of life. To live this kind of life. And I think that truth has got lost. Because we've had the ability to make it comfortable. And we've had the intellect to sanitize it. And we've had the luxury of filling our head with stuff. And keeping our lives tamed and safe. And distracted from the harsh realities of the world outside. The subtle and not so subtle message of Christianity. Is that we've inherited... A faith that simply said, show up and pay up. And to be honest, sometimes we struggled with that. That was a joke. Not so funny. Okay, turn to your person next to you. <laughs> and this might answer the very question. I didn't realize that until I put it. This is funny. What is the most radical thing you've done as a Christian? It might be turning to the person next to you. Go on, go. <laughs> go for it. Maybe, maybe there's a better question, okay? Move on quickly. What's the most radical thing you would like to do as a Christian? Most radical thing you'd like to do as a Christian? Okay, so there are, there are two questions, aren't there? What are the two questions? I'll give you the first one. What's God saying? What's the second question? What are you going to do about it? What's God saying? What are you going to do about it? What's the most radical thing you would like to do as a Christian? And maybe, maybe that's, that's too much of a stretch. But what's the first step that takes you on that journey? 
Every journey begins with the first step. What is it that, that just says to God, I can't imagine stepping into that which I'd really like to do because I'm way over here and that's where, but I'm going to begin to take a first step. Brilliant things happen because of first steps, don't they? Haha, <laughs> first steps. See what I did there? Yay, big shout out for first steps, missional community. Um, uh, uh, and, and brilliant things happen because we take small steps. Um, what's the verse in the Bible where it says, don't despise small beginnings? Zechariah what? I don't know either. But it's in there. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Do you realize that when, when we started the whole missional community thing, almost every baptism we've had over the last six or seven years is because of a missional community. Now, now I understand. I understand that as we try and do new things, we get things wrong and it doesn't all work out the way we want it to be and we're not all, you know, um, singing in the sunset. But as we step forward to try and do some stuff, God meets us there. And it began with some simple small steps. That baptism here on the Sunday that I would have preached this when Jason was being baptized began because Sherry took a really small step. Or you might think it's a big step, but the small step was, I'm going to knock on the door of Christchurch House and say, hey, can we do a Christmas party? So what's the small step, like the one that Connor took and said, hey, there's all these people walking outside while you're singing your songs. What if we just served them a cup of coffee? I mean, what a genius first step was that? Now, there are others of us in this room right now that have first steps in their hearts. And I want to say to you ever so clearly, as a community of people, we will throw everything we've got at helping you make that first step a reality because that's what God's calling us to. So if you've got no idea where to take it, then scream at one of us because that's what we're about. Taking the visions that God plants in our hearts and turning them into the dreams that he has for us. Rediscovering that we're a radical people. Secondly, rediscovering that we're an expectant people. How expectant are you? When you came to church this morning, did you expect it to be the same as last week? Or did you have a slightly greater level of expectation than the week before? Greater. How expectant are we? I think that we are coming out of, and this is a truth that we've lost, but we're trying to rediscover, we are coming out of a Christian culture in our country that isn't very expectant. And the reason we're needing to come out of it is that over the last uh, 30, 40 years, well, if I take the last 20 years, then I can talk about in my lifetime. The last 20 years, see what I did there? Now, if we take the last 40, 50 years and talk about my own experience, uh, we're going to go, well, let's get it 40 and then Claire can join in. The last 40 years... <laughs> Uh, uh, we, we have seen the church decline and we have not expected as a result many people to come to faith. You with me? Now, now, some people did come to faith. I came to faith. And some of you came to faith in that period of time. But generally, we didn't see people coming to faith. And that caused, I think, for all of us, a loss in confidence in the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. And I'm thinking, it doesn't seem very powerful around here. I'm thinking about the last 40, 50 years. I think we've often become ashamed or embarrassed about the gospel. We've even found it hard to talk about it because we, we feel like our words are empty. Somehow it has lost its power and we have become less expectant. When I grew up, hardly anybody in my church became a Christian. Now you're going to say you were in a rubbish church. But what about your church when you grew up? It's the same story, really, isn't it, if we're honest? Hello? Have I lost you? Were you in a super mega church where revival was happening? 
totally different to the rest of the planet? No, I doubt it. And, and, and that, that kind of squeezed us into this, well, our level of expectation became this. If the same number of people who were in church this Sunday come back the following Sunday, we'll take that as a win. And sadly, sometimes they didn't even do that. We couldn't even do the show up and pay up thing very well because we were hemorrhaging as the people of God. There were some great moments though. 1977, Louis Palau came to Cardiff and did a mission called something, can't remember. And um, there's always a song with a mission, isn't there? He'd preach his heart out and we'd be there. It was in Cardiff Castle, the floodlights were on, it was dark, crisp, clear evenings, can you imagine it? And, uh, and the choir, what were the choir singing? Who knows? Andrew, give a guess. Nope. Oh, no, you're way ahead of your time. This is way back. This is in the dark ages when I was little. This is way back. Nah, they should have been. All to Jesus I surrender all. To him I freely give. Let's hit the chorus. I surrender. I surrender all. That's what they're doing. The blokes in the choir and everything. They were giving it all their stuff. I surrender all. And people would come forward and give their lives to Jesus. Amazing. I was seven years of age. Sitting in the, sitting in the seats, <laughs> whatever you call them, uh, watching this. A choir are going every night, people coming forward, giving their lives to Jesus. And some of the teenagers, who were like seven, eight years older than me, in my church at that time, they came to faith. How brilliant was that? But do you know what it did? That, that's really good, so don't, don't miss that point. <laughs> we'll take that. They came to faith. But what it did was further reinforce a culture, whereas in order for the gospel to have some power... I need a castle and floodlights, an Argentinian evangelist, and I need a choir that's singing, I surrender all, and the bloke's going, I surrender all. It's the best bit of the whole night. Uh, And without that, and without a tent by the side where you could go in to make your response, it was like it was the tabernacle. You know, if you want to make a response, you go inside the curtain and you give your life to Jesus. Okay? I'm not knocking it, but I am. Um, They came to faith, but, but, but that doesn't happen back in your own church. Back in our own church, it was Sunday as normal and the gospel was without its power. You with me? Let's, let's bring it right up today. All of you remember this. 1984, Mission England. Who was there? Yes. Yes. Portman Road. Who was at Portman Road? Yes. I wasn't. But I was at Bristol, Ashton Gate. What was the song? Come on, there was a song. What was it? Nope. Nope. Uh, um, um, a, a new trio, Graham, Ken and Dick, had just started writing music. Does that give you a clue? Graham Kendrick. It was supposed to be a joke, that was. Went down like a lead balloon, didn't it? Um, no? That was Jack Hayford. He didn't... No, no, it's way before Shine, Jesus, Shine. You're way ahead of your time, Alan. You contemporary worship person, you. You're alive, you're alive, you have risen. See? If you want people to come to Jesus, you have to have either some women doing something or some men going, I surrender all. And then it all, that's, that's where we're missing. Andrew, bring it all back. Help us do this stuff. People will come to the kingdom in their droves if we get that bit right. And do you know what? So, so we've got all this stuff going on and I'm thinking, uh, Billy Graham, he's speaking on the prodigal son and we talked about him being a radical. And I'm, I'm a 14-year-old arrogant snotty teenager thinking that was a rubbish message. I'm thinking, who's going to respond to that? It was so simple, I couldn't believe it. But in Ashton Gate, just like Portman Road, the power of God was unleashed, wasn't it? People came to faith in their droves. Why? Because the church had been praying for probably a decade before. And so we had these glimpses of the power of the gospel, but it also, in a way, disempowered us, in a sense. Because if I wanted my friend to come to Jesus, and I needed Billy Graham to come back, and I needed the choir, and I needed a new song, and basically he only came once every 25 years, so it's quite a long wait. 
and what God's calling us to in this new wave of what he's doing among us as his people here and as the church in the UK is to recapture the power of the gospel being transformed in ordinary lives to ordinary people. Isn't that exciting? Because that means it can happen this week. That means it can happen in our neighborhoods and around the place. That means it can happen wherever we are. And I need my expectation to grow. We had a really significant meeting this week with our missional community, and perhaps I'll talk, well, I will talk about it at other, uh, at other times. We were just trying to refocus what we were about and what we were trying to do. Uh, and we were, we were plotting the journey that people we know and love might take to come to faith. And do you know what? Expectation began to rise in me. This is possible. It is possible for the power of the gospel to break into people's lives in the here and now. Patience, faithfulness, dogged determination to take God at his word. So what do you expect? What do you expect? Typically, we say, read your Bible, listen to more sermons, but you've got to put it into practice. What moment did the disciples' faith massively increase? When they went out and they came back, and, and they, were, they were well fired up because it worked. And they told Jesus it worked like he didn't know. Hey, do you know, Jesus, it worked, what you said. Uh, and he says it was like, Jesus, you know, it's like I see, you know, Satan falling from heaven. But remember that your names are written in the book of life. It was when they went out, even the demons submit to us in your name. Our faith, our expectancy will not increase in here, typically. It does a tiny bit. You know, I'll give it my best shot and you'll, your expectation will be here and by the end of the sermon it'll be here, I hope, sometimes. Sometimes it's down here, but that's another story. I can't help with that. That's just the levels of my limitations. But occasionally we'll get it up here. But, but quickly after lunch, it's gone back down here again. And, and the only way we can get it up and sustain it up is to actually do the things that we're talking about. It's, a, it's an illusion, that our faith grows in here. And that's a truth that we need to rediscover because we have thought, I have kind of been trained from a perspective that I can preach your faith to rise. Because as we hear God's word, our faith... Now, there's some truth in that. Don't misunderstand me. It's always a half-truth, but the whole truth is as we hear and obey, then our faith really starts to rise. And whilst we concentrate on the one, we need to uh, bring back a balance for the other as much as we can. What you do between visits directly re- relates to the level of faith that you have. We need to be radical with a small r, even by our conservative small c standards. You with me? So far, so good. Got time for a couple more? As soon as we're just sitting here? Yeah? Thanks, Margaret. You're very encouraging. We've already talked about it. We've talked about this kind of moving into the needing to do it, to put it into practice. I wonder whether Paul was, was kind of uh, not just hinting, but of whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. I wonder how he said this. For goodness sake, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. I'm not going to preach another word unless you do it, is what I hear him saying. Seems like a good idea. We've become seduced by the learning. As I said some moments ago, on a Sunday afternoon, I went to Sunday school. And if I wasn't at Sunday school and I got a bit older, then I would go to Bible class. Take prayer. Maybe you're concerned about your prayer life. I am when I hang around with Harold. I'm always concerned about my prayer life. That's not a joke. Uh, it's, It's a challenge. And the reason it's a challenge is this. 
Because typically, if I want my prayer life to, to, to improve, what's the first thing I'll do? Read a book. Excellent. That's what we'll do. We'll read a book. We'll go, I'll, I'll go to CLC and I'll get a book. Sometimes we just get the book, don't we, and hope that'll do the trick. We don't actually read it. Have you ever bought a book you haven't read? Yeah, if I get the book on prayer, that should do it. But then you've got to read it, which is, or I'll listen to some sermons on prayer. I'll study different aspects of prayer. Do you know what? Sometimes I'll think I'll write a sermon series on prayer. That should do it. Do you know that I preached a whole year on prayer in 2011? Anyone remember that? Two of you. Thanks. And, and what happened? We learned some stuff about prayer. I mean, the sermons were brilliant. You couldn't fault them. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't have, they couldn't have been better. But, 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 but I'm not sure my prayer life went through the roof that year. In a way that perhaps, and this is where truth gets lost, in a way perhaps I would have liked to have believed that we could learn our way out of the problem of prayer. But it's not the Christian life's to be lived, not just learnt. And honestly, I pray more when I'm around Harold rather than just reading a book. Because it's apprenticeship. It's, it's not the classroom. It's the life. It's the discipleship. And, and as I relate to him... It, it both challenges me, but it draws me forward. And somehow I've got to say, I've got to put the books to one side. Because to be honest, all the books on prayer say the same thing, don't they? Do you know what they say? They say, do it. That's all they say. I mean, people are making millions on it. Do it. Just do it. So, so you don't need the books, but I do need someone to disciple me. I do need someone that will help me put it into practice. So, here's the challenge. What areas of your life do you have more theory than experience? So take the prayer, for example. You could do a Bible study on prayer this afternoon, and it would be brilliant. And I'm sure it would. But somehow doing that Bible study is more energizing and more alive than your actual prayer life is. You with me? Your knowledge of ways to witness exceeds the number of times you witness. I know 25 ways to witness, and I used one of them six weeks ago. So my knowledge outweighs my experience. You could lead a Bible study on loving the poor, but you can't stop for the person in the subway. Ooh, see, there's a challenge there, isn't there? My, 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 my learnedness, my knowledge that makes me feel like I'm growing as a Christian outweighs my ability to put it into practice. So um, just chat to the person next to you. What areas of your Christian life do you have more theory than experience? Go. For me, for me, it's in the whole area of healing. My, my knowledge, my learnedness, my intellectual prowess around the subject of healing currently outweighs my experience and my practice of praying for sick people. The most uh, popular sermon series I've ever preached according to the download statistics, and I don't know if it's still the same, but it, this was true um, a few months ago, was the series that I did on healing. Apparently, we all loved that series so much, we went on to listen to it again. But we haven't really got the reality of God healing in our lives as a community off the ground in quite the way I believe we can. You with me? And, 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 and you know, me first. So I would find it more comfortable to read another theoretical book about praying for the sick than sometimes to say to someone right here, right now, let's pray. 
Where's God calling us to bring our experience up to the speed of our knowledge? Because the truth that we need to rediscover is that being a Christian is not an intellectual exercise. It's not the gaining of knowledge and understanding, and all of that's important and don't misunderstand. But it is about the putting into practice and living it out. Two very quickly, we'll we'll lob these two in um, uh, as we come to a close, and you can think about them more at your leisure. We um, We have this tendency to think about special people. The truth that we need to rediscover is that all of us are special people, And all of us are called to ministry. Baptists used to talk about the priesthood of all believers. Yes, that's what we're about, we'd say. You a closet Baptist, Michael? You're not in the closet, right, okay. (laughs) Very good. I don't know where to go with that, so we're going to move on. I'm in charge here. Stop interrupting, that's rude. So, we, we... we don't talk about it as much because we're a bit embarrassed. Because when we talk about special people, um, we talk about being the priesthood of all believers. What we focused on is special people. Do you know, we've called them ministers or pastors. And we've trained ministers and pastors to lead churches. And we've almost made their ministry as synonymous with the ministry of the church. And everyone else kind of plays a supporting role. Cheer him or her on in some way or other. Serve him or her to serve the greater good in some way or other. And we focus almost exclusively, single-mindedly, on the pastor. And we've trained those pastors to teach. So we've argued that the pastor is the teacher, or the teacher becomes the pastor. And we're already in trouble with this verse in Ephesians chapter 4, because it talks about the pastors and the teachers. And so I've, I've properly heard people argue, well, it's just one person. Um, but it's not. But what about the evangelists and the prophets and the apostles? And can you only be a pastor if you're a teacher? And Ephesians chapter 4 seems to say, well, there isn't just a pastor or a teacher. In fact, there's five of them. And, and so we as a church, broad church, but it's true of us as well, our tradition as well, we've overemphasized one or two-fifths of the whole thing. You with me? So it's five core ministries We've kind of said, we're going to appoint a pastor. And we wonder why we're not very missional as a church. Again, I don't, we can apply it to ourselves, but we're talking generally. We're not, and the reason is, we've, we've called a pastor, which is feed us, bless us, serve us, help us, look after us, be there for us, teach us. And, and we've created this disconnect between the mission of Jesus, which included all five, and the mission of the church, where we've singled out one or maybe two. We've lost four, and that's why the church is so inward-looking. We've trained pastors and hired pastors to look after us and feed us. Now, even if we rediscover the other four or three functions, so we've got five, we're still in danger of missing the point. And some churches have tried to do that, so they've appointed a pastor, and then they appointed an evangelist, which is always a scary thing to do, because they're difficult people, aren't they, Julie? No, yeah, they're uh, and, and so we've got five people now, and we go, yes, we're into this because we've got five, but we still missed the point. And the reason we've missed the point is we haven't looked at the whole thing and read the thing in all of its context. If you look at verse 7, but to each one of us, there aren't five special people, even if we captured all five functions, but to each one of us, grace, one of these gifts, one of these charismas, one of these personalities has been given as Christ decided to give them out. Hey, that's you and me. That's all of us. 
And we have to rediscover this truth. Because for as long as we look at special people doing some of the things, we will have lost the empowerment of what Christ has for his church. And you know the beautiful thing about all those baptisms that I talked about earlier on? If it had been left to me, none of them would have happened. Don't leave it to me, because I can't do it. You know that, don't you? Well, let me tell you, I can't do it. But together we can. Isn't that exciting? It's so much more liberating. It's so much more fun for us to do it together. It's so much uh, more empowering for us to be in this shared adventure. I'm just scratching the surface of all of that. So what gift are you to the church? Um, What gift are you to the church? What gift are you to this church? I thought of it when Mark was speaking. We should have had that big blokey with the hat on your church needs you. Well, he seems to like that one. In my McIntyre list of jokes that work, that'll go at the top of the page. But your church needs you. We need each, we need each other. And we have inherited this model that I am very guilty and you are very guilty of perpetuating, which is disempowering the body of Christ. And we have to change that really quick. You with me? We've got to change it. We've got to work out ways for it to change. And that's not because I don't want to do my job. It's actually because the job God's called me to do here is different to the one we might instinctively think of. Because if we promote the pastor as the minister and the carer and the provider, we will create a culture that's comfortable and consumerist. And whatever else Jesus wants us to be, I'm not sure he wants us to be comfortable or consumerist. And I'm the biggest part of the problem. And I need to somehow get out of the way And we all need to step into the space that that creates. I'm done. Claire, come and dig us out of the hole that I've created with all this stuff. Yes. Oh, I disagree with your last comment. (laughs) I'm going to take the brilliant leader. Okay, I'm going to take that. I'm going to... But I think you're good followers. And I think what you're saying in that language is really important. Somehow, we're creating a context for us all to move forward. Uh, And that's Sherry. Brilliant. Love to. Uh, Claire will correct. Yeah, we'll do that during communion. Is that okay? Yeah, and Kerry and family. Before we uh, rush into communion, let's stop for a moment, shall we? Let's just pause. Let's uh, pray together. What's God saying to you right now? So much in that talk. Just for a moment, we're going to have some silence and just allow it to settle. Which point is God nudging you about? What's he speaking to you today? And the next question, you know what's coming. What are you going to do about it? Maybe it's simply say, Lord, I need to hear more about your voice. Uh, I need to hear what you're saying to me. I need to commit tomorrow to pray this through or whatever. But maybe there's something more um, tangible for you to be committing to right now. What, what are you going to do about what God's saying? I'm going to ask us to do something brave. Uh, you may now look up and smile at me again. I'd like you just with the person next to you for a moment, just share one or two lines. I'm not asking you to share an essay. One or two lines. What's God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? Just with someone you know uh, right next to you. So we don't leave this place just having our little secret that we're going to do about it. By sharing it with someone who loves you, they're going to encourage you uh, this week. So just for a moment, go for it. Share something that God's saying to you with the person next to you. Go. Just 30 more seconds.
And I want you to turn that into just a couple of lines praying for the other person in what they're doing this week, what they're committing to. So uh, just perhaps put a hand on their shoulder and pray God's blessing on them uh, and that whatever that you've been talking about. So just for a moment, pray for that person. Make sure you give the uh, other person time to pray too. Father God, we uh, pray for each other right now. I want to thank you that you call us to follow you together, that we have brothers and sisters for the journey. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, those that you call, i.e. all of us, you equip. And so equip us, Lord Jesus, in these moments to hear your voice and to do what you ask of us. You give us all grace. You equip all of us. So help us to hear your voice this week, unpacking what we have heard today so that we may live for you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Nicola's just going to share for one minute a story that I think will help our faith uh, about being expectant. And uh, so here's Nicola. Hello, church. Um, So back in 1990, I was on Logos 2, Christian missionary ship. In a way, I wish I hadn't said it because it can happen here too. Um, I happened to be in another country and we decided we were going to do a cafe um, as an outreach thing because people came on the ship naturally to find out what it was. So we opened up this cafe, served tea and coffee and I really felt God saying to me, just pray. So the whole two hours when it happened, there were two or three of us, we went in another room and we prayed for the people to come to know the Lord. And um, I, I asked my friends, I was like, how much faith do you have? How, how many people do you think could come to the Lord tonight? And, um, and I thought, Lord, I think I can believe five will come to you tonight. And I just prayed. I really prayed and asked God that five would come to the Lord. And at the, night, at the end of the night, we chatted, and five people had come to the Lord that night. And the next night, we got together. We had it for three or four nights. And uh, I was like, wow, wasn't that great? I was like, how much faith do you have? And we chatted, and I said, I've got faith for six. So we prayed, and six people came to the Lord that night. The next night, I said, how much faith have you got? And I had faith for eight. I jumped by two. (laughs) I've really seen God move. And eight people came to the Lord that night. And the next night, the last night... I was like, how, many, how, many, how much faith do you have? How many people can we pray for? And I was like, oh, is it 10? Is it 12? <laughs> Silly, isn't it? The way we put God in a box. And 11 people came to the Lord. And I think, Lord, why didn't I pray for 100? Why didn't I pray for 100? But Simon said, do not despise the small beginning. And how much faith do you have for what God's asking you to do? Uh, I'm exercising. I do five minutes of exercise each day. It's a start. God's calling us to start, and it might be a small step, but it's having the faith, and God will answer. Thank you. Thanks, Nicola.